The House returns Tuesday and will stay in session through Friday. The Senate returns Monday and will stay in session through Thursday. Last week on the House floor, the House came back to work on Monday and passed two bills under suspension. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed H.J. Res. 46, a joint resolution terminating the national emergency declared by President Trump. The vote was 245 to 182, with 13 Republicans crossing party lines to vote with the Democrats against President Trump's declaration of a national emergency. Those 13 Republicans were Justin Amash, Brian Fitzpatrick, Mike Gallagher, Jamie Herrera-Butler, Will Hurd, Dusty Johnson, Thomas Massey, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Frank Rooney, Jim Sensenbrenner, Elise Stefanik, Fred Upton, and Greg Walden. Later Tuesday, the House suspended the rules and passed S-47, the lands package that had passed the Senate the week before. On Wednesday, the House took up H.R. 8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act. This bill would extend background checks to private transactions, including those at gun shows and over the Internet. Currently, only federally licensed firearms dealers are required to conduct background checks on potential purchasers under federal law. After dealing with two amendments, the House wrapped up its work and prepared to vote on final passage, and that's when things went crazy for House Democrats for a few moments. We'll talk more about this in a moment because it's important. Eventually, things settled down and the vote on final passage was called and the bill passed by a vote of 240 to 190, with eight Republicans crossing over to vote with the Democrats, while two Democrats voted against it. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 1112, the Enhanced Background Checks Act. This bill would extend from three days to 10 days the necessary waiting period for a response from the background check system before the sale can go through. After dealing with a few amendments, the bill passed by a vote of 228 to 198, with only three Republicans crossing over, while seven Democrats voted against it. And then they were done. This week on the House floor, the House will return Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is slated to consider seven bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House will take up H.R. 1, what Democrats are calling the For the People Act. We'll talk more about this bill in a moment. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate returned to work on Monday and took up S-311, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, a bill to prohibit a health care practitioner from failing to exercise the proper degree of care of a child who survives an abortion or an attempted abortion. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska introduced this bill after he heard about recent state legislative maneuvers by Democrats in New York and Virginia to liberalize their state's laws on late-term abortions. The cloture motion failed by a vote of 53 to 44. Bob Casey Jr., Doug Jones, and Joe Manchin were the three Democrats who voted for cloture. Kevin Kramer, Lisa Murkowski, and Tim Scott were the three Republicans who failed to vote. So Senate Democrats, all but Casey, Jones, and Manchin, are now on record voting against protecting born-alive survivors of abortions and attempted abortions. We're not talking late-term abortions here. We're talking about babies that have been delivered alive, babies that are outside the womb, babies that are breathing and have blood flowing, and the need to make clear in federal law that healthcare practitioners are obligated to render medical service to born alive survivors of abortions and attempted abortions. And the overwhelming majority of Senate Democrats, 44 out of 47, voted to kill that legislation. 
The Senate then moved to invoke cloture on the nomination of Eric D. Miller to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm Eric D. Miller to that position on the Ninth Circuit. <coughs> Excuse me. Later Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Michael J. Desmond to be Chief Counsel for the Internal Revenue Service and Assistant General Counsel at the Department of the Treasury. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm Michael J. Desmond to his new positions at the IRS and the Department of the Treasury. Later Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Andrew Wheeler to be Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. And on Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Wheeler to his new job as head of the EPA. Also on Thursday, by voice vote, the Senate confirmed John L. Ryder to be a member of the Board of Directors of the Tennessee Valley Authority. And then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, the Senate will come back in on Monday and will resume consideration of Allison Jones rushing to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Majority Leader McConnell filed cloture on several nominations last Thursday, so I anticipate that after the Senate is done with the rushing nomination, the Senate will move to consider Chad Riedler to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit, Eric E. Murphy to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit, and John Fleming to be Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. Now to free speech. House Democrats have introduced H.R. 1, the so-called For the People Act. It is a 570-page hodgepodge of election and campaign finance-related measures that, taken together, would have the effect of stifling free speech and virtually guaranteeing the election of liberals and Democrats at all levels of government. Really, it should be called the For the Politicians Act, and it's coming to the floor of the House this week. The House Rules Committee has set a hearing for Tuesday at which it will consider at which it will consider which of the 148 amendments if any will be made in order to be considered during floor consideration of the bill on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Now, we know we're going to lose on the House floor because the Democrats have the majority in the House. On the other hand, we also know this bill will never see the light of day in the Senate because Republicans are in the majority there and Mitch McConnell is the majority leader. And there's no way this bill would ever see the light of day in the Senate as long as Mitch McConnell is majority leader and he is drawing breath, right? Right. So what's the concern? The concern is that the left never, ever, ever gives up on this stuff. And just because we don't have to be worried about this bill becoming law in the 116th Congress, that doesn't mean we don't have to worry about what might happen in the 117th Congress after the 2020 election might change the political dynamics in Washington, or the 118th Congress, or the 119th Congress, for that matter. Remember McCain-Feingold, which became law in 2002? The Democrats introduced the original version of that law 10 years earlier in the early 1990s. And the liberals worked that bill hard for five Congresses before they finally got to enact it into law. And remember this, when McCain-Feingold became law, it was done under a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate with a Republican in the White House. So we need to put up a fight on H.R. 1. I'm gonna give you just a taste of what's in this bill. And I will direct you now to the suggested reading, which contains links to three excellent resources from our friends at the Institute for Free Speech, two separate analyses of the legislation, and then a really cool piece where they've taken current law and then added in red line edits to show what the law would look like if H.R. 1 were to become law. So from our friends at the Institute for Free Speech, specifically, H.R. 1 would unconstitutionally regulate speech that mentions a federal candidate or elected official at any time 
under a severely vague, subjective, and broad standard that asks whether the speech promotes, attacks, opposes, or supports. That's P-A-S-O. Promotes, attacks, opposes, or supports the candidate or official. It would force groups to file burdensome and likely duplicative reports with the Federal Election Commission if they sponsor ads that are deemed to passo the president or members of Congress in an attempt to persuade those officials on policy issues. Now, I'm going to stop right there and make sure you understand what we're talking about here. This takes an issue ad. Let's say Tea Party Patriots Action takes a position on a bill that's coming before Congress and we decide to target a half a dozen members of Congress for television advertising or radio advertising. We would then have to report to the Federal Election Commission <laughs> the spending that we've done on that advertising, even though it might be a year and a half before an election. And the advertising may say nothing about the member of Congress, the targeted member of Congress, other than call Congressman so-and-so. Uh, further, the bill would compel groups to declare on these so-called campaign-related disbursement reports that their ads are either, quote, in support of or in opposition, end quote, to the elected official mentioned, even if the ads do neither. This form of compulsory speech and forcing organizations to declare their allegiance to or against public officials is unconscionable and unconstitutional. The bill would force groups to publicly identify certain donors on these reports for issue ads and on the face of the ads themselves, faced with the prospect of being inaccurately associated with what by law would be considered unjustifiably in many or most instances campaign ads in FEC reports and disclaimers, many donors will choose simply not to give to nonprofit groups. The bill would subject far more issue ads to burdensome disclaimer requirements, which will coerce groups into truncating their substantive message and make some advertising, especially online advertising, practically impossible. The bill would focus public attention on the individuals and donors associated with the sponsoring organizations rather than on the communication's substantive message, thereby exacerbating the politics of personal destruction and further coarsening political discourse. The bill would force organizations that make grants to file their own reports and publicly identify their own donors if an organization is deemed to have, quote, reason to know, unquote, that a donee entity has made or will make, quote, campaign-related disbursements, unquote. This vague and subjective standard will greatly increase the legal costs of vetting grants, and many groups will simply end grant programs. The bill would likely eliminate the ability of many employees to make voluntary contributions through employee-funded PACs, which give employees a voice in the political process with respect to issues that affect their livelihoods. The bill would effectively prohibit many domestic subsidiaries and perhaps most corporations with even a single foreign shareholder with voting shares from making independent expenditures, contributions to super PACs, or contributions to candidates for state and local office, thus usurping the laws in more than half of the states that allow such contributions. This appears to be a thinly veiled artifice to overturn Citizens United and to unconstitutionally accomplish by legislation what congressional Democrats failed to achieve by constitutional amendment in 2014. 
The bill would disproportionately burden the political speech rights of corporations, thereby ending the longstanding parity in the campaign finance law between corporations and unions. The bill would increase regulation of the online speech of American citizens while purporting to address the threat of Russian propaganda. The bill would expand the universe of regulated online political speech by Americans beyond paid advertising to include apparently communications on groups or individuals own websites and email messages. The bill would regulate speech by Americans about legislative issues by expanding the definition of, quote, electioneering communications, unquote. Historically, limited to large-scale TV and radio campaigns targeted to the electorate in a campaign for office to include online advertising, even if the ads are not targeted in any way at a relevant electorate. The bill would impose what is effectively a new public reporting requirement on American sponsors of online issue ads by expanding the, quote, public file, unquote, requirement for broadcast cable and satellite media ads to many online platforms. The public file requirements would compel some of the nation's leading news sources to publish information which is likely unconstitutional. Both advertisers and online platforms would be liable for providing and maintaining the information required to be kept in these files, which would increase the cost of online advertising, especially for low-cost grassroots movements. Some of these online outlets may decide to discontinue accepting such ads due to the expense of complying with the requirements. The public file may also subject American organizers of contentious but important political causes like Black Lives Matter and the Tea Party to harassment by opponents or hostile government officials monitoring the content, distribution, and sponsorship of their activities. The bill would make broadcast, cable, satellite, and internet media platforms liable if they allow political advertising by prohibited speakers to slip through, thereby driving up the costs of political advertising, especially for online ads where compliance costs are relatively high. Finally, the bill would impose inflexible disclaimer requirements on online ads that may make many forms of small, popular, and cost-effective ads off-limits for American political advertisers. Believe me, there's a lot more in this bill that I haven't gotten to. I'm just going to give you one more thing. This bill includes public financing of politicians, and if I understand correctly, it's a six-to-one match at $200. So anybody running for federal office, who raises $200 from an individual can then submit that for a federal government match and get $1,200 from the taxpayers, meaning that $200 contribution becomes effectively a $1,400 contribution. Welfare for politicians. We need to work hard to defeat HR1. Now to House Democrat chaos. As we've discussed before, the differences between the House and the Senate are stark. The House is a majority rule body. On any given day, 218 House members can pretty much do anything they want to do. The power of the minority is truly limited, and one man acting alone can accomplish virtually nothing. Nevertheless, the minority in the House does have some powers and traditions. And one tradition of the minority is the motion to recommit. The motion to recommit typically arrives in the legislative process after all the amendments have been considered and is typically the last vote taken before the vote on final passage. It is technically a motion to recommit the bill under consideration back to the committee of jurisdiction. So that committee can rewrite the bill after having received the House majority's instructions. It almost always fails. 
because the House majority is ready to move ahead and vote on final passage rather than send the bill back to the Committee of Jurisdiction. On Wednesday of last week, as the House was considering H.R. 8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, it came time for the minority to offer its motion to recommit. But this time, the Republicans came up with a very clever motion. It read, and I quote, that the motion, quote, moves to recommit the bill, H.R. 8, to the Committee on the Judiciary with instructions to report the same to the House forthwith with the following amendment. Page five, after line four, insert the following, quote, E, regulations promulgated under this paragraph shall include, in the case of a background check conducted by the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, in response to a contact from a licensed importer, licensed manufacturer, or licensed dealer, which background check indicates that the receipt of a firearm by a person violate subsection G5, a requirement that the system notify U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. End quote. Well, that just sounds like so much gobbledygook, doesn't it? If you didn't know what subsection G5 was, you'd have no way of knowing what this motion did, would you? That was the problem faced by many on the House floor, including in particular many of the scores of freshman Democrats. Well, it turns out this measure simply meant that if during the course of a background check, it was revealed that the individual attempting to purchase the firearm was an illegal immigrant, that information would then have to automatically be turned over to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. No fewer than 26 House Democrats, many of whom were freshmen sitting in districts that voted for President Trump in 2016, voted for the minority's motion to recommit. So many Democrats voted for the motion to recommit that the amendment passed by a vote of 220 to 209. The amendment was added to the bill. So when the vote on final passage came, they were voting on a bill that included language saying that if an illegal immigrant were determined to be attempting to purchase a firearm, that information would automatically be sent to ICE. Needless to say, this led to no end of anger in the Democrat cloakroom. And on Thursday, at a meeting of the House Democratic Caucus, Speaker Nancy Pelosi took them to the woodshed, declaring that life in Congress is no day at the beach. Pelosi's new best friend, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, went several steps further, subtly threatening her fellow freshman Democrats, warning them of a list and implying that Democrats who voted for Republican measures would be subject to primary challenges. And Congress isn't even two months old. Stay tuned. Now to Kushner clearances. On Thursday, the New York Times reported that, contrary to assertions last year, President Trump personally ordered then-White House Chief of Staff John Kelly to provide appropriate security clearances for his daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner. The president has the authority to grant a security clearance to anyone he wants. In this case, according to the account in the Times, he did so to override objections from the chief of staff and the White House counsel, along with the national security professionals who typically decide such matters. So House Democrats will add this to the list of items they intend to investigate. To the national debt, on Saturday, an extension of the national debt limit ran out. So the Treasury Department is now employing a series of accounting gimmicks it refers to as extraordinary measures to keep the U.S. government's nearly $22 trillion debt below the legal limit 
and ensure that there is no failure to pay creditors. The Treasury Department believes it can employ such extraordinary measures until August or September before Congress must act. And finally, to the state of emergency, as discussed earlier, the House passed its resolution of disapproval on the president's declaration of a national emergency. On Sunday, that is today, Senator Rand Paul announced that he would join fellow Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Tom Tillis in voting for the resolution of disapproval in the Senate, thereby ensuring its passage when it comes to the floor, which will likely happen next week. President Trump has vowed to veto any such resolution of disapproval, and it does not appear that opponents of his declaration of a state of national emergency have veto-proof majorities in either House of Congress. And that's our Washington Report for this week.